Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the author's books and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Richard Buzzichelli, our lecturer in theology at Catholic Studies Academy. And today, as we get started, I want to first invite all of our listeners to please hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell so that whenever we release new content, it immediately gets put into your inbox or wherever it goes out, out there in the interwebs. And uh, um, please uh, share all of our content with your friends and family if you find it useful. But as we get started today, uh, our topic is going to be that of, uh, it's, it's a topic that's taken from Dr. Bruce Kelly's most recent class on ecclesiology uh, that he's uh, teaching here at Catholic Studies Academy. And all of our courses are, are there on our website. Uh, and we're, we're, we're pulling out a topic from, from his course there on the church. And uh, we, we'd like to discuss it. And I think it's a really, it's, it, to me, it's a super interesting topic. And that is the topic of communion. Uh, what does it mean to be in communion with the church? Um, because we have uh, um, uh, many different understandings of communion. And uh, uh, a lot of times it can, it can uh, become a very hot topic. Uh, especially if, you know, particular uh, politicians, let's just say, hypothetically, of course, uh, that, uh, you know, certain politicians come around or, you know, so we can we can look at uh, the idea of communion with regards to belief in that way. But also, you know, with regards, how do we how do we um, look at our Protestant brothers and sisters uh, who are not in full communion but they have valid baptism. And so today what we want to do is kind of just explore uh, this idea of communion and how we can better understand it and better understand uh, um, the beauty and uh, the glory that is the Catholic church and why as, as Catholics, we should strive to bring others into full communion, that that really is the goal of evangelization is to bring people uh, to Jesus Christ and to bring people to Jesus Christ is also to bring them into the Catholic church that the, the, the bride and the bridegroom are not separated. Uh, the two have become one. Um, and so, uh, Dr. Buzzichelli, uh, maybe to get us started, uh, today, um, maybe you can just kind of give us maybe a, a broad kind of, uh, um, uh, beginning of how do we understand this, this topic of communion and maybe give us, uh, uh, some some points of wisdom from the Catholic tradition, right? So, so let's start with the problem, right? The problem is that we are not in communion, <laughs> yeah. and I think that um, that that may seem you might say, well, sure we are, right? I mean, like we're all friends or whatever. Yeah. But but let's let's actually start with reality. Sure. Right in Scripture, um, one of the things, one of the points that's made very very early on is that something went horribly wrong mm -hmm. in creation, right? So when God makes the man and the woman in the garden, he makes them in communion with one another. The two are one flesh, blah, 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 right? Um, and, and we see that, you know, he makes human beings to, to kind of image himself, mm -hmm. to be his own image in the world. And God, as we know in particular, right, with particular... Uh, I don't want to say clarity, that's not quite the right word, but with, <laughs> with, with particular certainty, right? We know in the Christian faith that God is himself, uh, in his own simplicity, a communion, mm -hmm. right? A communion of persons. So this, this creature made in his own image and likeness, once it sins, it uh, falls out of communion. It, yeah. it basically falls apart. It falls to pieces, right? And you see numerous uh, examples of this in the scriptures. Uh, yeah. One is the story of the man and the woman in the garden, where after sin, they, they separate from each other. Mm -hmm. They see themselves as being naked in a different kind of way than they were before, right? Not naked as uh, vulnerable and transparent toward one another, but instead... Uh, naked as exploitable, right? As, as somehow taken advantage of or, mm -hmm. or easily harmed. And, um, and for that reason, they, they make loincloths for themselves out of the fig leaves and they hide from one another and from God among the trees in the garden. 
right? So, um, and then when God comes looking for them, the man points his finger at the woman. The woman, you put here with me. She gave me the fruit, and so I ate. So he doesn't trust God, and he doesn't trust the woman, and he's separated from his own nature because God made him to be in communion. Yeah. Right? So it's a real disaster. Another example is the story of the Tower of Babel, which begins with the idea that humanity at some point was, they spoke the same words about the same things, right? They were, mm -hmm. like St. Paul would say, of one heart, of one mind, of one prayer, right? This is a picture of a pre-Lapsarian world, if you would, right? And yeah. if you think of the story that way, but because of their hubris, they try to climb to God, right? They try to claim the things of heaven for themselves without waiting as at Pentecost, right? For uh, the Holy Spirit to come of his own accord and give himself on terms that he defines. Mm -hmm. And in this hubris, right? They, they let us make a name for ourselves, right? Yeah. They, um, they all collapse in upon themselves. And this, this tower they build in their pride comes crashing down and God confuses their languages, right? Mm -hmm. And now essentially they're all different cultures, all different individuals, all different languages. Uh, and, and then they're in alienation from one another. So that's the starting point, right? Um, and the word that we've kind of used to describe that condition is original sin. Mm -hmm. So, um, right, that's the, what we call it, right? Original sin. And this has to be overcome. We find in Christianity, right, that the answer to overcoming it, the definitive answer, right, not just a partial answer, not just a provisional solution, right, but the, the full solution to this problem is to be made one again mm -hmm. in the new Adam, which is Jesus Christ, the new man who binds together the totality of humanity in his own person right yeah so in himself he is the peace between us that's basically what communion in the church is being made a member of the body of christ and in that being made whole again being restored to what we ought to be as human beings yeah and Not that's only a, that but being brought into real communion with god himself right an elevated state where we enjoy intimacy in God's own inner life. Yeah, and I think that's a, a huge point to that. I mean, you can contemplate for the rest of your life on is that that communion that you enter into when you are baptized into Jesus Christ. Like that's it's not symbolic. It's not a dedication. It's not a a promise of how you are going to live. That you're going to be, you know, I will forever be you know, uh, uh, the apprentice, or I will, I will forever be just, you know, a friend of Christ or a follower of Christ. No, you are, you are literally in communion with him. That is, that is a reality. Now, again, it's an unseen reality. So it quickly, I think falls from our, our minds easily. Um, but, but that is a, that is a, a real reality. And, and, and again, like you said in the beginning, this has to do with salvation. And, you know, this communion is, is just absolutely key. So that, that reality that is there with that. Right. So I think this helps us to understand, you know, the idea then, uh, which many find offensive today, right? Yeah. That outside the church, there is no salvation. Yeah. Uh, if we, if you think about that in positive terms, so sort of, let's just look, not, why, why dwell on the negative aspect of it, right? which is yeah. what we're inclined to do. Outside the church, there is no salvation. So you're telling me that unless I'm in the church, I'm surely lost. Well, in a certain sense, I am saying that, but, I, sure. but, but, but let's look at it from the positive point of view, right? The way we see it in John's gospel is you're, you're already lost. I mean, like, that's the de facto <laughs> human condition. Yeah. The solution to that problem, right, is to be made one again to be yeah. brought into communion. You're in alienation now. The ultimate, most radical manifestation of alienation, right? When alienation reaches its term, we call that death and ultimately hell, mm -hmm. right? So what do, we know about the, what do we know about the dead? 
just look at it from a human point of view, leave aside the sacramental question, leave aside what we know from the effects that, that Christianity has upon death for us, right? Leave that aside. Let's just look at the guy who dies. What do we notice about the dead people in our lives? We don't see them anymore. We can't talk to them, right? They don't come to Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, the problem with being dead is that you're cut off from everyone you know, Yeah. right? And, um, and, and that's a problem that everyone recognizes cross-culturally, right? Now, people have different, people have different kind of, uh, they wonder about death and sure. they think about, they have different hypotheses about what else there might be to it. But it seems to me that, that one of the universally recognized issues with death is, it's, is it's, it, that it presents this massive problem. Yeah. We're cut off from the people that we love, right? That needs a solution. Yeah, and it's a solution that, that also has to fulfill uh, a desire that I think is within each and every person of eternity right there's there's a there's a certain desire to we understand our death but we want to somehow because even because even the secular atheist enjoys the idea of leaving a legacy right Uh of you know so even within even within i think the secular atheist you have this you have this desire for eternity you know um uh, what was the name of that? There's a good book. Uh, what was that? Uh, a Severe Mercy by um, Sheldon Van Aken. Uh-huh. Um, good book. But he, but he, he and his uh, wife wrestle with this this idea of eternity and 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 mercy and things like that. Um, uh, but but so I mean, like this, whatever this solution is, I think it has to, like you said, it has to solve that problem of death. But I think it also has to fulfill that desire for. Uh, eternity there like it's not just a a simple uh okay whenever you die in your subsequent deaths you just simply do this and ta-da it's done but but there's this longing that has to be uh fulfilled in that right right so um so the thing about i I guess the my point is to think about this idea of of the necessity of the church for salvation right yeah as almost a tautological assertion yeah Right. So basically, I want to say um, the problem is you aren't saved. The problem is that you're broken. You come into the world broken. That's just the doctrine of original sin. That's all I'm asserting here. Right. Is the doctrine of original sin. We come yeah, into the world. Is, I will say, sadly, that's a big assertion today. <laughs> today, it is a big assertion, but it's classical Christianity. Right. It goes it back yeah. to I mean, certainly it's been part of the Western Catholic tradition since since Augustine. And, and I don't think Augustine is just sort of pulling it out of thin air either. I mean, no. it's obviously he's wrestling with, he's wrestling with a major problem, right? I mean, the, the basic issue that he's, that he's trying to identify in this doctrine is, um, is something that he already sees as having been given in the faith, right? Sure. So, um, so yeah, the problem is that we come into the world not knowing God, not loving God as we ought not being in communion with each other, but instead being in a sort of adversarial state or prone for our, for our relationships to kind of disintegrate into, into an adversarial state. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not good, right? <laughs> if we want to live as we really ought and to manifest the image of God as communion, Mm-hmm. Right then, we then then that alienation has to be overcome. That alienation, which ultimately resolves in death mm-hmm. and hell, has to be transcended. Where is it transcended? In communion with Jesus Christ, right? And that's what we mean by the church. Yeah, and and that's a and and it's almost like when you when you hear that or when you know i think when a lot of people may when they may use that that phrase outside the church there's no salvation it's it's like skipping the first part or to me it's like skipping the first part of the conversation and jumping to almost the punchline uh Uh because because you even catholics they hear that and they're like oh that's 
that's so, kind so of judgmental. So yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. it's pretty intense. We don't believe <laughs> yeah, that anymore, do we? Like that word. Yeah, yeah, but but no, the the first part of I that holistic is another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you zealots. Um, you know, like, but 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 no, the, the the first part of that, the first part of that uh, sentence or the, the the preface to that should be that Christ is the solution of sin and death. Christ has bound himself to the church. Outside the church, there's no salvation. So, you know, when we get into that, but but again, even within um, when we look at, you know, okay, so how how are we connected then uh, to the church? Um, yeah. So I, I think that um, I think where a lot of this issue, I think where a lot of this this issue comes, um, you know, sort of collapses for people, right? Is yeah. is in the fact that the church absolutely has a juridical aspect. Yeah. Right, and so when I say outside the church there's no salvation, uh, one of the things that this seems to imply is that one must be united uh, in one a person has to have a canonical status yeah. within this kind of organization, right? With this kind of governmentally structured unit. Sure. Right. And that's what I think kind of bothers people. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, uh, well, again, if you reduce communion to the juridical aspect you reduce anything to the juridical aspect and it's, and, and it seem it's, it's insufficient for, for satisfying our, our desire for justice and mercy and all those things, you know, it, it really, it's gotta be something more, but a lot of times yeah. it's reduced to that. So right. well, we know it is, it is more, it is more, right. It is more, but people get hung up on the, on the juridical thing. Yeah. The problem is you kind of get hung up on the juridical, on the juridical thing because at, at the same time you, you can't just brush that aside. Right, right. It is right? important. So that, that's, that's where, now here's where I think historically, right, um, the, the primacy of the juridical really becomes an issue is in mm -hmm. the thinking of Robert Bellarmine. Yeah. Uh, now, Robert Bellarmine isn't really, you know, the, the first guy here. But, um, but even before him, you know, the Council of Florence, you had a strong emphasis on the juridical dimension of communion. Robert Bellarmine is in many ways picking up on that tradition. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he becomes kind of the premier ecclesiologist, right, in the post-reformational period. Sure. And for Catholics in the West, right, the Protestant Reformation is probably the most, you know, defining experience that, that the church will have had since the Great Schism. Yeah. Right. So, um, so basically, right. The, the problem with Protestants, I mean, there, there are sort of many problems with Protestants and I'm not here to bash Protestants, but I'm just saying, you know, of all the problems that we can kind of associate with the Protestant Reformation disagreements mm -hmm. about what constitutes, um, you know, what constitutes, um, salvation and what, what are the justification necessary yeah. for what constitutes justification and all this kind of stuff. There are many, many serious disagreements, controversies that surround the Protestant Reformation, but we often neglect to consider the importance at the time of the uh, dispute over the structure of the church, yeah. how you actually thought about the church, what the church is. And during the Protestant uh, Reformation, right, many of the early confessions from the Protestant tradition emphasize ecclesiology very strongly. This is new to the Catholic tradition, right? I mean, when you go back to the creedal assertions that were made, say, in uh, the first seven ecumenical councils, yeah. you have, you have um, affirmations of the church, its, ap its apostolicity, its unity, its holiness. You don't have belabored definitions, right, of, of what the church is is yeah you don't have lumen gentium or yeah, anything you don't have lumen gentium. To its, to its that's equivalent. right so lumen gentium is um probably you know really the second document really well i mean i think you've got you've got uh with the council of trent and, the, sure. and again the first vatican council and finally lumen gentium 
you know, but this was all influenced by the problem that arose during the Protestant Reformation, where, mm -hmm. you know, when you have to break, when you decide that you're going to break away from the church, well, you better have an understanding of what the church is. Why? Well, because you're breaking away from a juridical structure, but you can't break away from the church and still think you're going to be saved. Yeah. Right? You see, and even the, and the Protestants knew that. Right? They, the Protestants understood that, and that's why they had to have statements about what the church is. So they could say, we're not leaving the church. Right. Right? What we are is the church. Okay? So, so once that, that issue was forced, mm -hmm. naturally, naturally, the Catholic Church had to have its say about that. And Bellarine is one of the most important voices during this period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, so he comes with sort of this tripartite definition of the church, mm -hmm. right? Where he says that the true church is the assembly of men gathered in the profession of the same Christian faith and in the same communion, right? In the communion of the same sacraments. Um, under the reign of legitimate pastors and especially the one vicar of Christ on earth, the Roman pontiff, right? So that's, that's Bellarmine's definition. Yeah, so we give three, three kind of criteria there, the profession of faith, the sacraments, and then uh, subjugate, uh, subjection to the Pope. Right, and that's the juridical dimension. That's the juridical. So, right, so that, now the problem is that this is going to become kind of the, the most important thing uh, in Bellarine's definition. I mean, it just sort of devolves to that. And uh, we can yeah. talk about why, but it's very, it's interesting. And it turns out to be a little counterproductive in the long run. And this is one of the reasons why the, um, the 20th century, really actually even into the 19th century, uh, from the 19th century, right, moving up through the middle of the 20th century and eventually to the Second Vatican Council, you see sort of modifications of the, on the emphasis of the juridical dimension, mm -hmm. right? In the hope of restoring some of the importance of the, um, the other two dimensions, right? The sure. profession of faith and unity of the sacraments. So, the, um, so there, there are some strange things that happen because of the emphasis on the juridical, right? Yeah. And one of those is that you, it's possible, according to Bellarmine, that you could actually profess the correct faith and you ready? Yeah. Actually celebrate valid sacraments and yet not be in the church. Right. So yeah. this is actually, this is very, very interesting. And if you just think about, I mean, on the one hand you might say, well, sure, that's true. I mean, what about these schismatics? Yeah, exactly. The schismatics. That's exactly the people he's talking about. <laughs> the schismatics. But, but consider the strangeness of the hypothesis, right? Yeah. Um, valid sacraments. Valid but... sacraments and true faith outside the church. And one wonders then, right? Um, if extra ecclesiam nulla salus, right? If outside the church there's no salvation, does this mean that these people can celebrate the sacraments of salvation and yet they do them no good. I mean, what, what are the implications of this? Right. And it's really troubling and odd. Yeah, that is <laughs> not going to lie. It's right. You're not, I mean, you can't, <laughs> you can't get away from it. Well, it turns out, right. That actually this Pope's addressed this mm -hmm. uh, issue. Right. I mean, even in the, in the, even in sort of the middle of the, I want to say the 1860s, this issue started to come up. And, and so, you know, there was reference to invincible ignorance and, um, and by which they didn't mean that you were just a fool, right? What they meant was that, uh, that it sure seemed to you from where you were, I mean, you're an East, you're an Eastern Orthodox dude. Yeah. Right? It sure seems to you from where you are that you've got things straight. Um, we can't expect you to know otherwise, right? I sure. mean, this is, 
Yeah, especially once generations have, have gone down the line. And, have gone, we yeah. can have long, we can have long, heavy uh, arguments, right, about about where the points of disagreement lie. But but these are these are arguments now that require expertise beyond <laughs> even what most bishops would possess. Right. So are we really going to say and, 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 and really, I mean, just it just strikes one as bizarre. Yeah, I don't that, know. I don't know how to wrap my head around that. <laughs> like the, the sacraments could be invalid for generations upon generations and yet still be passed along. Right. Yeah. There could be baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, ordination. Uh, and yet. And yet there, and yet the, there is no church. Uh, that's just very, very strange, right? Yeah, yeah. It, and it seems like a very unique kind of wound to the church that does exist, right? That, that you have this group that's so close. You know, they have yeah. what, yeah, they have so much but they're still lacking something. They're not in that full communion. Right. So now if you look at, let's jump into the middle of the 20th century, right? And you've got, you know, you've got uh, Pius XII. Yeah. And Pius XII at the time of the Second World War was very concerned, right, about the secular menace. I mean, the diabolical secularism of Nazi Germany and, uh, and really, you know, in the Soviet Union, even though they were, even though they were, you know, they were sort of um, uh, coalitional allies, right? Sure. Um, against the Nazis, but they were still a massive problem for Christendom, uh, right? And of course, um, I mean, you just had, there was, it was a disaster in the world at the time of the, of the Second World War for Christendom. And and Pius XII was like, all right, Christians. It's very interesting the way he writes, you know, the um, De Mystici Corporis Christi, right? Yeah. He's, he's addressing all Christians, not just, not just uh, Catholics. And, and he's talking even to Protestants, right? And he's like, look, people, um, we've got to take seriously now more than ever. I mean, it, the luxury of being able to be uh, at odds with one another is past. <laughs> this is not that time. We need to get our house in order. Christianity can't continue in this, in this condition of fragmentation because the forces of darkness are, are, are arrayed against us. It, so much easier for them to tear us to pieces if we're already torn apart by ourselves. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is really his concern in Mystici Corporis Christi. Uh, and so he says, he, he wants to remind the Protestant world that, that, they, that they are recognized by the Catholic Church as Christian. Mm -hmm. As belonging to that mystical body, yeah. Relationship with the church, in which he says, they cannot be sure of their salvation. He doesn't say they're not saved. Mm -hmm. He says they cannot be sure of their salvation. And the reason is, interestingly, they lack, they lack many of the, the necessary aids to salvation that the church in, in her sacramental economy provides. Yeah. Right? So in the absence of the sacrament of reconciliation, for example, um, one, is, one is left to some alternative right something other than sacramental grace whereby the problem of uh the problem of of sin is corrected after baptism right so basically you commit a mortal sin right and maybe maybe you never do i, I mean that's theoretically possible right mortal sure. sin is a, is a is a choice we have to choose to do it, right? Yeah, you don't fall into and it. I hate that. You don't language. just you don't just collapse into it, right? It at some level, if it is a mortal sin, it does involve a deliberate choice. Right? Sure. Okay, so so it's possible you never do fall into a mortal sin, I, I guess, right? 
but lots of people do. And, and, and if you do, right, if that friendship with God is severed, and it's that friendship with God wherein we have the strength to turn to God, why? Because we share in God's own inner life, right? Mm-hmm. And this raises us above our merely natural condition, such that we can love God as he deserves to be loved, namely with the yeah. power of the love that comes from him, not from us. Right. So if, if that relationship is severed due to my turning away from God by choice, how does it get fixed? Right. Well, maybe God in his infinite mercy um, does manage to fix that for people, but sure. he but doesn't we don't know. We don't us. know. Yeah. We don't know what he does. Right. The, he, he reveals to us the sacramental economy on a need to know basis. Right. This, this is what he ordains for us. And, and we know that that works, right? We know that that's going to get the job done. What else there might be if we should live apart from that economy? Sure. Only God knows the answer to that. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, and a good per, a good Dominican professor of mine, um, he made the distinction that I always try to keep in mind as well with regards to even just, you know, the sacraments, you know, do how, how do the sacraments work? We don't know. Like we, how, like really, how do they work? How does baptism really unite you to the person of Christ? We don't really know exactly how that works, but get, we don't need to know that. What do we know and what can we be absolutely sure of because Christ told us? Well, that baptism works. Yeah, so here's what... And I think that's super important to remember. We, the only way that we know to salvation is baptism. We know that that works. Let me say something here about the divine prerogative, if I might. Sure. Right. Um, I think one of the important things, right, in resigning ourselves to the necessity of the sacraments. Yeah. Is to simply accept that they're ordained by Christ. Right. So for in the divine prerogative, God chooses the sacramental economy for us to affect our salvation. Now, we can accept that, and once we accept it, we can meditate on it, and we can yeah. ask what wisdom is to be found there. What We can explore the symbolism of the sacraments. We come to appreciate the richness of them. But that question about metaphysically how they actually achieve the thing we say they achieve, yeah. well, that's really simply because God so ordains it, right? But why does God ordain it? And I think, I think the reason, uh, th- there's a reason that we, there's something we can say about that, even from our own human point of view, right? So I might mm-hmm. say, in God, sure. I don't know in God's wisdom why he chooses these things over others. But, um, I mean, I can find meaning in the things God chose. Could the sacramental economy have been otherwise? Probably. Uh, I guess, right? I can't yeah. say for sure there couldn't have been. But but given that God gave it to us, right? Here's what I would say. It does seem to me that if he wants to affect unity where before there was division, mm-hmm. it would stand to reason that he wants us to share something in common as concerns our ritual response toward him. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like that we worship him, we respond to him, right? We live our lives as response to him in a way that is at least in its basic elements recognizably unified. And that I think is is where um and I would say a lot of that. I would say a lot of that is also goes into God's mercy. He, I mean, it would be, you know, um, almost unfair to us if He said, "I'll save you if you just baptize people," but I'm not really going to tell you how to do that. How, I mean, how, can you, how do you have any surety of of what it is that you're doing? Right, you're saying you, like you if, can't. If, yeah, he says, I want you. 
I want you to come up with sacraments pleasing to me or something, right? <laughs> and you're like, yeah. well, okay, but what sacraments would be pleasing to you? How Is many do we need to have? Yeah. Right. How many do we need to have? And, um, right. And, and it seems to me actually that there are many Christians today who think that's exactly what God did. Yeah. But, but I would say he, he did it because he, he knew us. He, he, he wanted to give us a sure way and he did. Uh, and that's what we preach. You so know, think we, about it like this, right? Yeah. To the extent that I wish to depart from the sacramental life of the church. Okay. Right. I want to go my own way on the sacramental economy, do things the way I want to do them. Right. I'm, I'm setting myself at odds from what all Christians historically have done. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I'm, that's exactly the move in the wrong direction. If the whole point was that you're separate from others to begin with, that you're alienated, right? That you're just yourself and not the whole, then, then that move is exactly the wrong move, right? Yeah. Um, the way but, we, I, but, I, but I think that's a very attractive position for a lot of modern people to be in because they don't like commitment. I want to be part of the church, but just the invisible church. Well, because if I'm, terms, yeah, because, because if I'm part of a visible church, that probably means that I have duties and responsibilities. Uh, and I have to probably show some commitment to those people. Uh, and uh, I don't like that. So I, I might have to obey someone. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's or be corrected. Or be corrected. Yeah. Be corrected. Right. Right. So, so I think that's... you know, in Bellarmine's definition, you definitely can see that. I mean, the the basic elements he outlines are not wrong. Yeah. Right. They're not wrong, but what happens is this weird this this weird thing about the schismatics who have the correct faith. Uh the um the true sacraments yet sure. are not in juridical communion with the with the pope yeah and a person could say well then they really don't have the true faith because if they did then they would know that they have to be in allegiance to the pope right um yeah i guess except you know when you talk to it's not that orthodox don't have their problems right but i mean like a lot of ink has been spilled over the decades since, since Ut Unum Sint. Yeah. Uh, right. John Paul II's encyclical about the papacy. A lot of Eastern Orthodox theologians took him up on, on his invitation to rethink the implications of a Petrine primacy, right? Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, uh, while it's true that there are certain dogmatic assertions that have to be made about papal primacy, namely that it's a real thing, there are many open questions about it. Sure. Right? What, what actually are its practical implications in our daily lives? What, how far does it reach dogmatically, right? I mean, like, the kinds of questions about... Um, about um, uh, when ex cathedra statements are made, how we determine that, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no formal <laughs> list of ex cathedra statements uttered by popes. Um, the, condi the, the, uh, the conditions of, of an ex cathedra statement, right? They're outlined in the First Vatican Council document, right? Outlined, uh, yeah. But... but when you actually try to <laughs> apply them, is this an ex cathedra statement? Is that an ex? Could a, a pope make an ex cathedra statement like this one or like that one? Yeah. Get into some very, uh, very interesting and, and open questions. Sure. Right. That are really, uh, I mean, unresolved, right? Uh, some unresolved issues. Yeah. So there's still a great deal to talk about. And, um, and so, you know, if you're an Eastern Orthodox guy, you might, you might, you might actually hold the position, as many do, right? Many, many do mm -hmm. hold the position that uh, I mean, I could, you know, I, I could, I could show you the articles from in the ten-year period that followed Udunum Sint, 
probably 50% of the, of the articles in the English language Eastern Orthodox journals. Um, and I don't think I'm exaggerating. Probably about half the articles were about papal primacy or some aspect of it. Interesting, yeah. And, um, and so there are a great many uh, Eastern Orthodox theologians who would recognize that there's something about the Bishop of Rome. Sure. And, um, and that, that there's some sort of need to be in communion with him, right? And they might dispute whether indeed they are sufficiently in communion with him, right? Yeah. In, in other words, if their condition, if their current juridical state um, satisfies the, minimal, the minimum requirements, right, of, of being in communion with the Bishop of Rome. Does I mean, look, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're no longer regarded as excommunicate. Yeah. Right? They're not regarded as excommunicate, right? So what exactly does that mean? Are they in communion or not? Well, if they're, yeah. If they're not then, excommunicate, does that mean they're in communicate? <laughs> right? I don't know. Well, from, from the perspective <laughs> of um, the sacramental economy, sure. then you would say they are. Right, so if they have yeah. if they have the true faith, they 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 would profess the very same creed we would profess, right? So basically, yeah. in the sense of broad orthodoxy, they would profess the very same faith in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, His only Son. Right? They would confess the very same faith. Mm -hmm. They would they would they have the same sacraments and view them except in perhaps the finer details, right? Mm -hmm. They view them as essentially the same realities that we accept them to be. Yeah. Right? Um, and when it comes to the Eucharist, right, we would say, it is indeed the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. They would say that too. Sure. So if we're in communion with Jesus Christ in and through Eucharistic communion, and so are they, because in fact they have the true sacrament, right? Well, how many Jesus Christs are there? There's only one. Mm -hmm. And therefore, right, we're one in Jesus Christ. We are indeed one in Jesus Christ. That's what's, that's, that's, um, right, so that's the, that's the crystallization point between, that's the, the, the point of intersection, really, between what's called koinonia ecclesiology, mm -hmm. right? Communion ecclesiology and Eucharistic ecclesiology. Yeah. Right. Um, so in Catholic and Orthodox thinking, the two really belong together. Yeah. We do still have disagreements here between Catholics and Orthodox sure. on the implications of sharing the reality of Holy Eucharist. But but I think what we do recognize is that there's something that there's an essential link between Eucharistic ecclesiology and Koinonia ecclesiology. Yeah. Whereas from a Protestant point of view, right, the sacraments don't have the same significance as instruments of salvation, as media of salvation, right? And so um, there's there's affirmation of the true faith. There's mm -hmm. true belief. And they might say true worship, but we would have disagreements on what true worship entailed. Sure. So, right? so if you're so, looking at, so if you're looking at uh, Bellarmine's kind of three, uh, kind of three criteria there of profession of faith, sacraments, and uh, um, recognizing the Pope, uh, the juridical aspect that we have been talking about. So the the Orthodox then they're lacking that juridical uh, that juridical aspect. Protestants, and we would say, would be definitely lacking the juridical aspect, but also the the sacramental aspect. Well, part of the sacramental aspect, um, yeah. because we do recognize uh, the or a lot of Protestant baptisms. So they have the the that one sacrament, and um, for the most part, the same profession of faith, unless you know, until you start getting into the many different denominations and actually seeing, you know, if some of them have some sort of Christological heresies or something like that. But for the most part, yeah. they would have that, that, that profession of faith. 
Right. So um, if you're basically talking about, if you're talking about, you know, sort of, again, we'll use the phrase broadly orthodox. Um, right. So, so th this is a term that you'll hear Protestants use. Sure. And, and you know the Protestants that we're talking about, right? I mean, we're talking about Westminster Confession type um, reformed yeah. thinkers, right? Or, you know, like Missouri Synod Lutheran types, right? Where they would, they would, what I mean is they will profess the, um, they'll profess the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed and sure. mean by it mostly the same thing that we do. Yeah. Right. That it's recognizably the same, the same faith, the same God, the incarnation. Mm -hmm. um, and if we're talking about Protestants like that, then yeah, we're going to recognize their baptism as valid. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there, there are some very interesting questions, actually, about what happens when, you know, do, what if you don't believe that, that baptism is, in fact, salvific, right? Like, yeah. the Baptists don't really believe that baptism is salvific. It's commanded by God, and so they do it, but they don't, they don't believe that it causes salvation or constitutes yeah. one as a Christian. That's an interesting issue. So far in the history of the church, they there hasn't been a judgment that that invalidates the sacrament, which is very, it's fascinating to me, but um, I mean, we could sit here and talk about that, but that's a whole other conversation probably. Sure. Now, now let's, uh, let's look at maybe um, where did, do, where does morality fit in, fit into this? Because this is always something that comes up with regards to, you know, talking about, you know, being in communion with the church, you know, would that fall under, you know, profession of faith, I guess. Well, yes and no. Yeah. Right. So, so um, I think we can say that uh, faithful, faithful Christians. I mean, by faithful here, I mean Christians who believe rightly, mm -hmm. right? Um, and they have they have sort of the supernatural habit of faith. Let's say. Yeah. Okay. Nonetheless in in our um in our condition this side of the parousia we we have this problem right and that is that we are strongly tempted to sin and it's true that grace helps us to persevere against sin mm -hmm. but most of us know from our personal experience that um unless you might be some sort of extraordinarily gifted person I don't mean gifted as in sort of smart or something. I mean, like God has given you some special, some infused. special grace. Yeah. Right. Some infused grace that like, like, you know, like you're, you're John the Baptist or Jeremiah or somebody, unless that has happened, you experience temptation in the course of life. Sometimes it's rather strong and under the weight of that, of that temptation, sometimes people sin. Um, so, so saying that, right, episodic sin mm -hmm. is found in the church. And in fact, we have a sacrament to deal with that. We've already sure. talked about that, right? We have a, so the church recognizes this is a thing and we've got a sacrament to address it. Um, but if you say that you're talking about somebody who simply rejects the moral teaching of the church, right? Yeah, or just habitual unrepented sin yeah i think what what's happening at, so, at a certain point right what's happening is you simply have rejected the faith that yep. basically there's a point at which i mean you could have maybe some severe cognitive dissonance or something right where you just yeah. choose you just choose to put it out of your mind and maybe sure. if i asked you you would recognize that this sin that this is a sin and that and that it's a habitual part of your life um, to which you've you've sort of given up any resistance, but you, so you that could be the case, right? That could be the case. In which case, I might say you still you still have faith, but there is obviously a defect in your faith, right? A pretty severe defect because there's a yeah. radical disconnect between your behavior and what you claim to believe. Yeah, uh, and there's something about being rational, right? That that makes that living in that condition very difficult for us yeah well that's what i was thinking that's what i was thinking about like with 
looking at you know Bellarmine's you know three points here, like you know the the person who's living in that again because it's uh, uh, mortal sin, they're doing it with full knowledge. So I'm assuming full knowledge and all that stuff, full consent. But it's it's as if they're you know denying the sacrament or or not cooperating at, at the very most not cooperating with the sacramental grace yeah that's they for are sure. they are uh, uh maybe denying some aspect of the faith or like you said have some kind of deficient um whether it be in their will when they're uh-huh. when they're professing the faith or something in their intellect uh while they're you know whether it be you know some kind of ignorance that they should probably probably vincible but but even even with even when then when it comes to the juridical almost a setting aside of i don't care about the juridical yeah. aspect so, it's almost it's almost like a rejection about- like the moral the 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 moral problem i see is kind of a pushback against almost all three of those yeah things. it can be and i think yeah. often it is so i want to distinguish between I want to distinguish between sort of the weakness that you find in many people, right? Yeah. Where there's temptation to sin. It's difficult to live in the face of this temptation that never seems to go away. And so many people sort of give into it. They resign themselves to it. That's a bad state. Yeah. But it's, it's somewhat understandable. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the person lacks faith. It does kind of indicate that the person, um, well, I mean, there's something desperately wrong that needs to be addressed, but but it doesn't necessarily mean he lacks faith. He might mm-hmm. still recognize that what he does is evil, right? Yeah. Maybe he loses hope, but not necessarily faith. Um, what I find really remarkable today is is what, and I've been sort of working on a series here for CSA, a bit slow on it. Uh, but this idea of the invisible, an invisible schism, mm-hmm. that in the church today um, there are people who seem to seem to confess something that isn't Christianity. I mean, they they would um, they could maybe they could pray the very same prayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could be sitting next to me in mass. They could profess the same creed, but. But the way they interpret the words that they're saying, I'm convinced, is not the same. And I think that we, we can see evidence of this when we see people who, in the name of Christianity, in the name of their Catholic faith, right? Yeah. Say, because I'm Catholic, I advocate for abortion or for, you know, contraception for everybody. Sure. Or something like that. And, and you... This is clearly the case. I mean, we see this among Catholic politicians in Congress and soon perhaps in the White House, right? I mean, we see this very thing, these people who are juridically Catholic. Yeah. Juridically Catholic, right? Uh, but but whatever it is, they think, how can I put this? If they think that the Catholic Church commands that abortion be made available to everyone right that abortion is a positive social good to be ensured by the government yeah right uh or that that uh you know that that gender theory right is 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 a good to be recognized and to be celebrated by society, right? Not, not just that we shouldn't, you know, sort of do bad things to people who have those experiences, but, but that we should advance <laughs> the way of thinking that affirms it as, as a, an authentic uh, right. way of being human. Or and inst- that this is, instill it in our laws, you know, yeah. Instill that's... It in our laws and punish people for, for not, uh, for not, not assenting to it, right? Uh, whatever it is that you believe, if that's the case, yeah, I don't recognize it as Catholicism. Yeah, right. And in what, some cases, Christianity, like you said, or, or even Christianity. So, right? Do, do you see what I'm saying? Is like that that if if you say 
it's my it's my Catholicism that leads me to these conclusions. And I'm going to say, if that's true, then then your Catholicism and my Catholicism are not the same thing at all. Um, and so we have this weird phenomenon of of actually being juridically in the same church, maybe even sacramentally in the same mm-hmm. church, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't actually share the same faith. Yeah. Very, yeah that's very strange, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of the, the, the great line of the Princess Bride, right? You keep using that word. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think it means what you think it means, you know, yeah, right, it's, right. it's <laughs> right. but, but, but like you said, it's that, and, and this is where I, you know, I think, you know, with regards, especially here in America, we, when we talk about communion many times on both sides, we can, whether it be the liberal politician or even the conservative Catholic, we can fall, we can, we can reduce it sometimes to the juridical. You know, yeah. the, the, the liberal, the liberal Catholic can simply say, well, I haven't been excommunicated, therefore I'm a Catholic in good standing. Or, or it's like, well, no, you're not <laughs> like, because the juridic, you can't reduce communion to just the juridical. You have to look yeah. at all the different aspects, the profession of faith, the sacraments, and, you know, some denominations are different, but you know, if you're a professing Catholic, that means that you are in full communion with the church, which means you profess uh, uh, the same, you, 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 you make that public profession of faith and, and it's, and what you mean by it is what the church means by it. And, and, and that's, that's a key, I think that's a key part of, uh, the understanding of when we make that profession of faith. When I say, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ, that's not me saying, I believe in, you know, uh, a very He's important just, man in history. Yeah, the, the greatest philosopher or something like that. No, 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 no. Yeah. I believe, yeah, I, you know, in, you know, in what the church believes. And, and that's, and, and again, that's also how when we enter into communion with the church, it's, we, it, it's not, you know, I, I don't go off and write my own creed or I don't, I don't do these things on my own, but I, I, assimilate myself i bring uh uh, i submit myself my intellect uh to that which has gone before us but like you said there's for people to it's one thing for a catholic to espouse a position like abortion or or uh, uh contraception for all or something like that that's one thing but for them to justify their espousing to that by their catholic faith I mean, that's, that's taking it to, I think, a whole new level with regards to like, okay, hang on, we got to back the train up. What do you mean then yeah. when, when you bizarre. say these things? It's yeah. bizarre. And I would say that our current crisis, as far as this goes, is a holdover from Bellarmine's influence, right? So, and I'm, I'm yeah. not saying it to bash Bellarmine. Bellarmine is great. Yeah. But, um, and if you get what it was that he was trying to address. Sure. Then, then, then you see you see what the importance of the definition that he that he applied. But when we misapply that definition in yeah. the current context, we have problems, right? So our inability to to deal with the obvious persistent heresy that governs uh, the decision making of so-called Catholic politicians, right? Mm-hmm our inability to actually deal with this and decide that they can't be admitted to communion. Yeah. Um, and there, there's clear disagreement among the bishops on this issue, right? That's, <laughs> they, they don't, they just don't agree on how to deal with it. Yeah. That, that you would say, uh, I'm going to admit it to communion suggests that you're kind of radicalizing the juridical element. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You're, so, or, or you're reducing communion to simply this juridical he Tell identifies him. as Catholic. He's yeah. in the he's a he's in the parish registry, right? So, um, but so here's what Bellarmine says, right? So, so there's the tripartite definition, right? The profession of the true faith, the communion of the sacraments, and the subjection to the legitimate shepherd, the Roman Pontiff. By reason of the first part, right, the profession of faith, all infidels are excluded from the church, right? Mm-hmm. 
uh, both those who were never in the church, such as Jews, Turks, and pagans, and those who were and went back, such as heretics and apostates, by which he means here, formal heretics, right? Yeah, yeah. Those who have been tried as heretics uh, and convicted. By reason of the second part, catechumens, right, so this is sacramental communion. Yeah. Catechumens and excommunicates are excluded. Catechumens are excluded from the church. Which is interesting because we bury catechumens in the church. Yeah. Right? All right. So catechumens are excluded from the church as well as excommunicates. The former because they are not admitted to the communion of the sacraments and the latter because they are cast out. Mm -hmm. By reason of the third part, namely juridical communion. Uh, by reason of the third part, are excluded schismatics who have faith and sacraments, but are not subject to the legitimate pastors, and therefore they profess the faith and receive the sacraments outside the church. But, listen to this, this is the part that's really interesting. All others are included, even the reprobate, the wicked, and the impious. And, and, and that's, that's kind of where where we are right now, I think, with, you know, the Nancy Pelosi's and Joe Biden's of the world. Th that, that's what I see. Yeah. Right that's now, here's, but this is, this is where, so again, going back to the Protestant Reformation as the context, yeah. with it, understand what he's talking about. He points out the difference between his opinion and the, and the opinions of others, mm. right? Mm -hmm. The Protestants placed heavy emphasis on the internal virtues that constitute a person as a member of the church. Yeah. Right. And an account of which they make the church invisible. That's the problem, yeah. right? Bellarmine wants to be able to say, there's the church. I know I'm in communion with the church. I know I'm in the church. I can identify where the church is. Yeah. Right. And I'm in that. Uh, but the Protestants had a problem, right? Mm -hmm. if, if outside the church there's no salvation, there is a worrisome issue here if the church is invisible. Yeah. How do I know I'm in it? Right? And that's what Bellarmine is yeah. trying to, to deal with. So I think, when, when, I think what we just have to do is to say, look, I mean, true faith, and communion in the sacraments. Um, well, communion in the sacraments, that's pretty visible. Sure. And true faith is something that I can identify at least, at least in indirect ways, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the, the public profession of faith is a huge part of the Easter vigil for those coming into the church. Yeah. That's right. one of the main parts of that mass is that public profession of faith. Right. It's huge. Uh, and I and I can't simply thumb my nose at the authority structure of the church, right? I have to be, I have to submit to that. So really, I, I think we have to say that Beller, for Bellarmine, all three elements, all three elements here have to be, yeah, have to be recognized as important. Yeah, and and uh, uh, and, and to understand that there, there, you know, there is such a thing as this partial communion, right? And that's um, right, which is which is again kind of you know. It's it's muddy. It, it's, it's nothing muddy, is nothing right. is very muddy clear. And uncomfortable, but that's where yeah. the that's where the church goes in the course of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Sure. To this to this uh, to the recognition of this this imperfect communion. Yeah. Now what and, we want is the perfect communion. We want a person to profess the true faith, to be in communion with the sacraments, and to be uh, subject to the lawful authority of the church established by Christ in communion with the Roman Pontiff. That's what we want. Yeah, right? and that should and yeah, and that should be a big, a big aim for us uh, right. uh, with Please regards to evangelization. We don't want to right. preach people to to kind of a mere Christianity, but we want to bring them into this this full communion of the church. That's right. right. So basically, basically, yep. I think we have to say, according to the teaching of the church as it unfolded in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said about Lewis's concept of mere Christianity. Yeah. 
right? There, that, that is a reality. Um, is, it a, is it an all-sufficient reality? No. No. Yeah. It's not where we want to stop. And C.S. Lewis didn't think so either. Yeah, yeah. Right? Exactly. It's not where we want to stop. And the Catholic Church has a clear idea of where we ought to go, right? Namely, into the full sacramental economy of the church and juridical communion with, with the successor of Peter in the Bishop of Rome. Mm-hmm. But, but those who truly profess the name of Christ are Christians. And those, right, those who've been baptized in the name of, in the, name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, right, and profess yeah. the name of Christ are Christians. And the, those who and the Orthodox right are members of the Church right. I mean, the, even though the language is very strong, that they're recognized, sure. they're recognized as being part of the Catholic tradition. Yeah. Um. But still, we 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 need to keep pressing forward. Yeah. Until the unity that Christ desired, the unity that really brings humanity back together again. Yeah. Uh, is, is realized yeah and that's what and that's what's about salvation and like you said the whole thing with communion is uh, uh go begins with original sin the, the the destruction of it and so what we're what we're trying to do with evangelization and with everything we do as our church is that is that um that solution because we are united to the person of Christ. And that's where we want to bring people. Right. So imperfect communion is never going to be the stopping point. That's no. Stopping. Yeah. Yeah. It's a starting point for Christians <laughs> right sure. now. Yeah. It's not where we end up. Yeah, uh, exactly. All right, Dr. Bruce Kelly, I think you've given our listeners a lot to think about. Um, and uh, hopefully some, uh, um, hopefully some people will go out there and uh, research a little more and check out uh, Robert Bellarmine's um, uh, writings. Uh, and what he has to say on this, and just even exploring the topic of communion uh, in the church in that way. I want to point all of our listeners to go check out all of our content over at catholicstudiesacademy.com. Uh, be sure to uh, look at all of our free stuff, but also know we have a lot of courses. Dr. Bruce Kelly's just finished up one on ecclesiology, and he has several others on sacred scripture, fundamental theology, and the whole goal of Catholic Studies Academy is to get people to study the Catholic faith in both philosophy and theology uh, together uh, uh, because they, they serve each other. Uh, actually, philosophy serves theology. But uh, I won't tell Dr. Smith you said that, but uh, uh, this is how the church wants us to study uh, 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 the, the, the arts. And so this is how we're trying to present it here at Catholic Studies Academy. So I want to invite everybody to go check us out over there. And in the meantime, God bless.